MakeReal specializes in creating immersive learning solutions across a range of technologies. To download their latest academic paper on how to turn learners into activists, visit makereal.co.uk slash activists. Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new episode of Great Minds on Learning. In this highly acclaimed series, Professor Donald Clark, internationally famous author, blogger and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorising about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. Social constructivism, the strand of learning theory we feature in this episode, had its origins in the thought of Karl Marx. However, it became a strong influence on educationalists in the capitalist West during the latter half of the 20th century, and thinkers such as Piaget and Vygotsky are popular on teacher training courses to this day. But does its central tenet that learning is socially constructed rather than individually discovered hold up under scrutiny? Welcome to this episode about the social constructivists and welcome to my co-host Donald Clark. Donald, if you'll just excuse a small personal anecdote, I'd like to briefly mention two occasions on which I asked a couple of professional educators uh, who were the learning theorists that figured most prominently in their own instruction as teachers, i.e. who did they get taught about in teacher training. Both mentioned Jean Piaget straight off the bat, and he's one of the people we're covering today. And another of them, Vygotsky, also figured. Then if I tell you that these two incidents were 45 years apart, the first time when I was at university in 1977, I was talking to a friend of mine who'd gone to the teacher training college over the road. And the second was just last year from a person who writes books about educating children. Well, I think that says the group we're talking about today must have had a deep and enduring influence on the teaching profession. To, to be mentioned first like that, you know, in, on those two occasions so far apart. So really the downside is that's the extent of my knowledge at the outset here, a very fuzzy picture of what we're talking about today. And I guess since I represent the barometer of general ignorance in this series, quite a few of our listeners will be in the same boat. So Donald, can you bring this group of theorists into better focus for us? Where does social constructivism come from? Well, it doesn't surprise me that there were 40 odd years apart because I mean, this goes way back, really, to Marx. I think essentially. So you have uh, you have Marxism, and of course, a whole number of Marxist theorists. And we will be doing a podcast on this uh, that come out of Marx. But if you go back, I think it's the Communist Manifesto is the first mention. Marx wrote very little about education and so on, but in the Communist Manifesto, written of course with Engels, he makes a big statement about uh, the social context for learning. You know, the edu- all education is essentially a social education and uses the phrase in German, of course, which is determined by the social conditions under which you are educated. So mm-hmm. that whole notion of everything being shaped by society is a fundamentally Marxist concept. And, of course, that's written in a huge amount of detail. It's, it's exploded by people like Gransky and Althusser and Habermas and so on. And of course, it's no accident, I think, that Vygotsky is included in today's list because he is writing in the 1930s, of course, in our holy Marxist environments. And if you read the two major texts there, they, they have a lot of this dialectical materialism and Marxism in them. It's, it's sort of subtly ignored, but the truth of the matter is that it is in there. 
And I think, of course, Marxism got watered down and diluted and so on, but it creeps into psychology. And, of course, we have very odd concept social constructivism in a way, you know, because when people use the phrase, it trips off the tongue nicely, oft quoted, as it were. But, you know, what does it mean for things to be socially constructed? And that's what we're going to dig into today. Because there are some real problems with it taken in a naive sense. Is everything socially constructed? You know, is two plus two equals four a social construct? Is everything we see in the outside world a social construct? Are all our emotions just socially constructed? I think this notion of de-anchoring de -anchoring everything from the natural environment in which we are a part is actually a bit odd. You know, do we construct the whole world Do we in a vacuum? And of course, the big criticisms against social uh, constructivism have been consistently, really, that it's a sort of odd theoretical framework that stretches too far. This overemphasis on social and cultural factors, it gets almost reductio ad absurdum at times. Not only the overemphasis, but quite a lot of lack of empirical evidence that it's true, which people, I think, conveniently ignore. And certainly... There's a lot of lack of clarity in the terminology, I think, possibly come to that. But also this potential for relativism. You just collapse into a swamp of relativism if everything is socially constructed, every, anything goes. I also think there's another... It's interesting your anecdote about those two people because I think there's a great deal of political bias also in social constructivism. We would like that it were true. <laughs> you know, uh, we, would like that, we would like it to be true that there was no such thing as genetics, for example, or there were no fixed entities in the brain. But I think Pinker is fundamentally right in the blank slate. We've discussed Locke and the, the Enlightenment theorist who thought that the brain was a tabla rasa, which it clearly is not. We The brain brings lots of things to the table, uh, which are largely genetic and, uh, you know, it's an evolved organ. But it's almost a denial of it's almost a denial of Darwin in a funny sort of way, which is odd. But it's a la mode, it's de rigueur, it's what lots of young people believe, that everything in our mind is just a social construct. I don't buy it for a minute, but uh, I think it's important to really look at the uh, the people who believe this in some detail. Not all of them do, by the way. There's a, some really sophisticated intellects in today's list, but some of them got it badly wrong. Some of them, I think, half right, but we're getting there. So let's get into the first of those. Jean Piaget, uh, 1896 to 1980. Only education is capable of saving our societies from possible collapse, whether violent or gradual. So said Jean-William Fritz Piaget in 1934, a Swiss psychologist known principally for his work on child development. Born in Switzerland to a professor of medieval literature and a French woman of English descent. Uh, I think her forebears were steel founders. Uh, from Lancashire. With a precocious interest in zoology, Piaget uh, had published several articles on mollusks by the age of 15. Studying at the universities of Neuchâtel and Zurich, he went on to be recognised as the great pioneer of the constructivist theory of knowledge. By the end of the 20th century, he had become the second most cited psychologist of his era, just pipped by B.F. Skinner in first place. He founded the International Centre for Genetic Epistemology, in Geneva in 1955. Epistemology, of course, being the, you know, the philosophy of how we know what we know, and directed the centre until his death in 1980. Donald, how influential has he been and why? Well, massively influential, but not always in such a good way, I think. 
I think there are two big inputs he plugs into psychology, really. First is this notion of schemas, you know, the idea that uh, when we learn, we have to adapt or what he called assimilate and accommodate. These are the two ways in which we have to sort of wed new knowledge into our existing schemas. Hmm. And assimilation is the inc just simple incorporation, you know, assimilating information into the existing schema. Accommodation is very different. He thought accommodation was really, you had to adjust or, or, or create a new schema to fit the information, okay? So that, that, that was the real core social constructivist concept he brings that's turned into scaffolding eventually. We'll come to that in a minute, yeah. uh, through Vygotsky and Bruno. The second big one is his famous four ages and stages. And uh, that, that's the one that's rather odd in a way. Uh, let's do the ages and stages one first, because I think that's the one that everybody sort of knows, but it's completely, I mean, it turns out to be completely and utterly wrong for all sorts of bad reasons. Oh. The first thing you have to say about Piaget is he was a terrible scientist. I mean, awful. It, it would be wrong to associate him with the word. So the four, what he thought was that in child development, and this is what he's most famous for, there are these four stages uh, up to the age of two, you have the sensory motor stage where the, the child or, or, or babe in arms almost just, you know, the intelligence is just motor actions, you know, looking towards the mother, food and so on, completely reactive. That's up to the age two. Uh, then the, the pre-operational stage between three and seven, he was very fixed on these ages, remember, is that you have a certain in, intuitive intelligence in nature. You're starting to recognize that people are other people, that you are in a world, as it were. So it's a bit like Geary's primary, you know, you don't learn this stuff, it just happens to you as it were. Okay. And, and of course, language comes into play there, your first language, acquisition of the first language. So we have sen sensory motor, zero to two, a pre-operation three to seven, if we get this right. And then the next big one is the concrete operations side of things. And this is where you start to get really logical and start making, uh, drawing conclusions from what you're seeing and doing. Okay, and that's between the age of so eight to eleven, just before people go into sort of secondary school or high school, and then stage four is the formal operations side, and that's between twelve and fifteen, where you're thinking in abstractions. You're really thinking in terms of ideas. You'll be able to string ideas together, manipulate them, come to conclusions, and so on. So he has these four stages, and he's very definite on the age. He does a lot more granular stuff on this, which we you could go into detail. But if the big four are wrong, then why bother almost? And of course, almost every one of those four stages has been subsequently ripped apart, even the experiments themselves. So the, the first one, the sensory one, was based on a, a very famous experiment where he hides a toy under a, under under a piece of cloth, yeah. and then he makes the claim that the child no longer thinks it is there. Now this turns out not to be true, uh, so that wh when the experiment was repeated by Bauer and there are other uh, replications of the experiment, in the absence of an adult, he, most people and a teddy bear and so most children actually have no problem in understanding the the fact that the toy is still under the cloth. So he got that one completely wrong. Uh, Kagan comes along also and criticizes it because he's just he's really talking about just the lack of development of working memory. So mm. that one got knocked in the head quite quickly, to be honest. And then Chomsky comes along and says, well, what about language? You have this babbling stage up to 10 months, followed by, you know, the realization of real meaning. And really, 
the truth is that Piaget just completely ignored the linguistic or language development side of things. Now, mm. the pre-operational one, the second one, he gets this wrong as well with another really terrible experiment. And it was all about failing to recognize, like the, the child fails to recognize that a doll can actually see a mountain. And there was, there's a, another perspective on a third object. And that turned out to be completely and utterly wrong as well. Uh, it was just that he made the experiment so complicated that the kids couldn't understand what was going on. Yeah. So along comes Hughes with we've got famous papers showing that he had dolls of two policemen and showed that children can indeed understand this third perception, this other mind that can perceive, as it were. So second stage got knocked on the head. The third one is the operation uh, stage. That, that was a, a paper by Rose that, again, sort of wiped it out, really. Uh, so the, the, the notion that, you know, the problem that uh, Piaget had there was in the data, he asked his own children, remember he used his own children in an experiment, I think you should never do, along with the children of some of his wealthier friends who came to dinner with him, and mm. he just repeatedly asked them the same question until he got the answer he wanted. This is all written down. It was quite bizarre. Mm. And then he had a famous, it's called the Rose's Sweet, Sweets trial, which again, he claimed that children at this stage, the concrete operational stage, couldn't get consistency in number. Turns out they can. And then in the final one, the, the formal operative stage, again, uh, he screws that one up as well, because he actually does this bizarre description of children of the stage, almost like little mathematicians that are full of these logical operators. Yeah, they can understand, you know, X plus Y, but not Z. Yeah, and that's not how the mind works at all. And in fact, all four stages were abandoned in subsequent research. So terrible scientists, terrible experiments. It turns out that people are much, you know, that children are much better at all sorts of things and move at different paces through development at a much younger age. Okay. And the real problem here is that people who take Piaget too seriously, actually, it really is a bad thing in teaching because they're doing the wrong thing at the wrong time and they're not being flexible enough with children's, the plasticity in a children's mind, in children's minds. Yeah. So they're looking them into a scheme. So Donald, when you say he's a bad scientist, yeah. is that the experiments are badly designed? Can he be, uh, he, he, he interprets the data badly? Where does the badness lie? Can he, in a sense, be excused for the, the historical oh. time when he did the experiments, the experimental method has moved on? What is the, the, the sort of madness as a scientist? The scientific method was certainly there when he was doing this work, but I mean, where do you start? Uh, the first one is that, well, like Freud, just not a scientist at all. And the, these two suffer from the same set of defects in this front in terms of what they did. First of all, he uses his only three, three children, he uses all three along with their mates. Now, don't do that. You know, that's a, <laughs> that, that's a bad idea. Uh, and secondly, there's no independent observation of the experiment. He does it all. He asks the questions. So, of course, he's open to the charge of uh, observational bias. He doesn't isolate the variables in any real sense. So you're not really testing for anything that's identifiable as a single variable. Mm. And also, he's, he's pretty vague on his language and concepts. And that goes back to the idea of a schema. Still to this day, it's very puzzling. What exactly is a schema? It seems like a very, very vague concept indeed. And indeed, uh, others come along and criticize him on that front, uh, left, right, and center. So almost every stage of the scientific method, he, he screws up. <laughs> so why is it stuck? I mean, why, why 
did it stick? Well, like a lot of these older theorists, you know, like Bloom, you know, there's a, there's a little sort of classic pantheon here that all go back, I mean, over 100 years now, some of them, and they get stuck, you know, they get stuck in the theory they, and they get fossilized in PowerPoint slides and in old courses. And there's the rub, you know, a, you know, as soon as, you know, especially if they've got a little, if they've got a little diagram, it's always if you have four stages of something, if you could put it in a four-way grid or a pyramid, it tends to get fossilized in the system. I think because the way in which much of this is taught has been from either textbooks or PowerPoint now on whiteboards or whatever, where it's really nice to have a really simple schema that people can remember. So people get hung up on the models rather than the veracity of the science or the validation of the science. And I think that's happened with learning styles is the most obvious example. It's happened with Myers-Briggs, with Maslow's pyramid, with Dale's Cohen's pyramid, with Bloom's pyramid. We're full of these things, but they mostly turn out to be completely and utterly misleading and uh, if not just plain wrong. So is that the, the kind of top and bottom of Piaget and his influence or, or is there other stuff? No. To be fair, I think the schema thing, so you have the four stages things. The schema thing is quite important because people talk about schemas all the time. That has some some worth, to be honest. You know, the idea that as a child might have, you know, I'm, I might have a cat in my house. And as, so as a young baby, I get used to the cat. But when I encounter my first dog, the schema I have is a cat's schema. One of, you know, it's got four legs, two years, uh, you know, it's got some fur. And then the dog walks in. Uh, well, how does a child know that's a dog and not a cat? Well, yeah. of course it will make a different sound. It won't meow, it will bark. So suddenly you have to assimilate that new knowledge. There's a great deal of, in, this is a really interesting idea and there's a fundamental truth in this that you have to accommodate new knowledge into your existing knowledge structures. But the the problem there is that there's a bit of an overemphasis in the role of cognitive processes. I think that that's one of the problems there. Uh, I think individuals constantly adapt and modify their schemas. That's definitely true. But then he doesn't do a good job in explaining what a schema is. It's difficult to determine what constitutes a schema, how it's formed, how it's represented in the brain. And of course, that's where the cognitive scientists come in and do a much better job, I think. So big definition. Also, a, limit, a limited explanation of individual differences. So it doesn't really fully account for why some people, like I may have a very different uh, set of schemas or adopt schemas faster in some areas than you, and you may do it faster in some areas than me. So why are some individuals have more complex schemas than others? It's a, a bit of a puzzle. And then I think the big one for me is just almost a lack of empirical support for the schema idea. It's very difficult to pin it down scientifically and identify what it is and how it works. Yeah. Make me wonder why it took me so long to give up on cats and get a dog. <laughs> yeah. A lack of accommodation and assimilation, Piaget would say. That's what it is. So shall we move on to, to yeah. carry on with this story, which has had a rather difficult beginning here? <laughs> yeah. We hope this podcast ups your knowledge about learning. But did you know learning podcasts, that's audio training created according to evidence-based principles, is a powerful and fast-growing medium. AssembleU is an audio-first provider with a ready-built course library to help your people improve productivity, leadership, well-being, and more in their downtime. AssembleU also creates audio courses unique to your company or institution. Try it free today at assembleu.com slash greatminds, all one word. So Lev Vygotsky, 1896 to 1934, um, a Russian psychologist born in the same year as Piaget, as the um, observant will have 
notice there, but died much younger of tuberculosis at 38. Piaget had a long life. Vygotsky is best known for his theories about learning and development, which emphasised the role of culture and social interaction in shaping human cognition. He was born in Belarus into a non-religious middle-class family of Russian Jewish extraction, and his dad was a banker. He was admitted to Mox Moscow University by a ballot. At that time, there was a 3% Jewish student quota, disgraceful, and um, he only got in by luck, by ballot. Vygotsky argued that learning is a social process and that children develop cognitive skills through their interactions with others, as you know, we, you've kind of mentioned this as part of constructivism. He believed that language plays a central role in this process as it allows children to internalise social knowledge and to think and reason in increasingly complex ways. His whole career was within the Soviet system, and you mentioned Marxism as being an important part of this. And the fact that Stalin was not a fan of his led to his work being ignored or suppressed for quite some time after his death. But Donald, once his ideas spread more widely, what was their influence on learning? Well, the influence has been both odd but massive. <laughs> so the oft-quoted Vygotsky, and I very rarely come across anybody who's actually read any of the, well, the two main texts there, Thought and Language, which was published in 1934, and then the follow-up, which wasn't published until after his death in 1978. And that, that book's called Mind and Society. But they really are worth reading because these are really amazing ideas. But wh whether they're right or not is, is a separate question. Mind and Society is really exploring the social and cultural influences that shape, co shape cognitive development. You know, that's what the book is all about. And then this, the other book, the earlier one, the Thought and Language, is all about discussing the relationship between language and thought. And that's the area in which, in which he's perhaps best known for, the relationship between language, thought, and learning. Now, it's no accident that he grew up in Soviet Russia, the Soviet Union. No accident at all, because some of this stuff comes right out of Marxist theory. When you read the books, you see the dialectical materialism, you see the Marxism. Uh, but unlike Piaget, Vygotsky's theory doesn't propose distinct development stages. He's much looser on that. But he does think that language, everything is socially mediated. This is why teachers love him. Uh, he thinks that mediation really matters in learning. And he talks about the tools of mediation. We can come to that in a moment. So I think most people misinterpret them here in thinking that just human beings matter in mediation. But he used very deliberately used the word tools in mediation, which brings in the whole AI thing and so on. But the fundamental thing here is the idea that sociology is all. All psychological phenomenon or social constructs, social and cultural pressure is what makes the brain learn through language, okay? So mediation itself, when unlike Piaget, who thought that it was a, just a, a almost biologically determined thing, and Vygotsky didn't get rid of the you know, innate or biological phenomenon either, but he certainly thought that knowledge was constructed through this called, thing called mediation, which means that you have to really have a knowledgeable adult, normally an adult, it can be your parents, it could be a teacher, it could be your friends. And the focus is that on the idea that they are pushing you through guidance and facilitation towards learning new stuff through language. Mm. And you talk about tools, but um, you didn't have AI. So by that, you might mean something like a book. Would it, could it be? You exactly. So the, ro 
Exactly. So what is mediation? Now, that's quite a puzzling thing because, of course, he was writing in 1930s before all of these media, at the dawn even of broadcast media like television and so on, but certainly books were around. And he certainly sees the a print as a mediating force. But if he had been alive now, I think he would have loved chat GPT-4 because it does precisely what he's talking about, a very detailed linguistic speaking to you, chatting to you, Socratic dialogue type of development in the cognitive development in a child's mind. Now, there's a lot of very detailed stuff in here. Uh, the zone of proximal development is one, but the if we rush through his developmental process for a moment, because that's important in terms of comparing him to Piaget, he thought that socially, we start off silently up to the age of two, talking at oneself, sorry, talking to others, as it were, babbling almost in a Chomskyan manner. So that's the social talking to others. Every baby does that, babbles for about 10 months. Then there's a private talking at oneself, but out loud. And babies, young babies do this. They talk, but they're talking at themselves or for themselves. So the social moves to the private talking stage and then to internal speech. And this is where... Vygotsky places a huge amount of emphasis on this notion of silently talking to oneself inside your own mind. Okay, So he thinks that this takes place about age seven and that there's an inner monologue. This inner monologue is terribly important because it allows you to regulate your thinking, manipulate objects and think like an adult. And he thinks there's this break point. He's not too hung up on ages and he caught at each of these stages, he calls it two plus, three plus and seven plus. In other words, it can happen faster in some children than others. But this private and inner speech, he thought, happens because of social influence. Okay, So he has a pre-Chomskyan view of language. Language is not something we're just born with and given, uh, like a you know some sort of hidden, hidden uh, mechanism. He thinks it's all social. There's no language acquisition device, which is what Chomsky thought came pre-packaged in the brain. Right. So... I think we get the idea where, he, where he's coming from here. The other big concept is the, is the SPD, the Zone of Proximal zone of Development. Proximal development. That was going to be my next question. Um, right, okay. I hear yeah. this quite a lot. Um, can you explain that catchy title for the uninitiated? Well, I don't think the idea was either original to him or even to be honest, fully developed. And it's what, when, you, when you look around for it, there's not much, it doesn't really actually explain what it is in a huge amount of detail. But the Zone of Proximal Development is this. So you, you start at baselines, if you've got a baseline here, there's a difference between what I as a learner know now and what I'm capable of knowing through this mediation process. Okay, and that's a sort of zone. And you've got to keep learners in that zone within their capability, as it were, and not to push them too far or else, because that results in sort of cognitive dissonance or demotivation or whatever. So you're just constantly keeping people. Now, my mother could have told me that. You know, I don't think there's anything yeah. startlingly original in this idea. And in fact, Brunner, who will come to next, I think we're doing, uh, you're going to ask about him next. Brunner thought the whole idea was completely contradictory because you don't know what you don't yet know. Yeah. So, you know, it's just a weird concept for a learner to have. They don't know where this upper limit is or lower limit is. And so, and, the, and Brunner also makes the same point that I, I would make, which is the concepts are blatantly obvious as an observation, just really sort of like, wow, big deal. Yeah, of course that's true. You know, if uh, if I were if I were uh, teaching somebody how to play chess, I wouldn't leap into some sophisticated chess game, uh, sophisticated opening. I would teach them the basic moves first. You know, obviously you're going to keep them within a sort of zone of achievability. 
but I think that's an, almost banal in a way. Mm. Now, what, what did come out of the mediation and zone proximal development stuff was a very interesting word, scaffolding. And before we leave Vygotsky, though, there's some really interesting other stuff that I quite like in Vygotsky, which nobody really discusses much. He was really interested in special needs, you know, kids with learning difficulties, and the fact that he really did believe that they, you should keep those children in mainstream schooling as long and as much as possible, within reason, and not necessarily teaching them the same thing. Uh, however, he has a rather crude sort of primary insect taxonomy around this, but he was really interested in this. And in a typical Soviet manner, he thought it was all to do with deficits and use it, he actually uses a term called defectology. <laughs> a bit weird. But special needs was an interest. And another one was the notion of play and creativity. Hmm. I really like this stuff from Vygotsky. First of all, he has a really interesting definition of creativity, which is the very opposite of the Western capitalist, he would say, individualistic idea of creativity. Create, uh, and he's got this really brilliant article called Imagine, uh, Imagination and Creativity in Childhood, again written in the 1930s, where he, he describes the notion of creativity being the sort of recombination and extension of existing discoveries. In other words, the idea that, uh, you know, uh, I'm just back from Barcelona. So the idea that Gaudi was entirely original is, of course, completely wrong. Gaudi was picking up on two big mainstream forces, Gothic, Catalonian Gothic, and also Art Nouveau. And that, and that resulted in a sort of synthesis of, of a Gaudian, in my view, rather gaudy uh, art form that went nowhere. It was a bit of a dead end. But nevertheless, Vygotsky has this really interesting notion that goes against the individualistic theories of creativity that underpins most of the literature in the West on this. Yeah. And it's a really interesting debate around all this AI stuff now, you know, is a photograph, there was a photograph that just won a photographic competition produced by artificial intelligence, raises an interesting issue here. But all it's doing is taking all that creativity, the sum of creativity in human knowledge and images, and creating something new. Hmm. He would have said, well, that's how it works, really. And then another thing related to that is around age three in young children, we start doing interesting things. We we treat dolls as real people, for example, or a stick can become a rifle if you're you know if you're out fighting in the back garden or whatever. Yeah. And he he stick thought that, cartoons and so on. Yeah, and that's right. He thought this was terribly important for cognitive development. The, the recognition at this stage it's how you learn to deal with the world, and you can actually transpose this thing can be that thing, <laughs> as it were. He thought that was a very interesting feature in young children. So yeah. play. Creativity. This is a really smart guy, you know. Getting into aesthetics, and, and he did have an early interest in in the arts, didn't he? He did indeed. Yes, he wrote, wrote extensively in the arts. So, uh, in many ways, you know, I think I disagree with many things. I don't think language has that prime the primary role that he thought it has. I don't think things are socially constructed to the extent that he thinks they are. Mm. Nevertheless, some things are socially constructed. And his views, his wider views on other topics are of interest. But I think, to be honest, you know, I said at the beginning, he's oft quoted, rarely read. And that's the problem here. In, the, in this day and age of, you know, identity politics and so on, he's popular, I think, because he says what people think. And there's, you know, I think that's what I, I was saying at the beginning. I think there's some political bias in the acceptance of social constructivism that is unhealthy and not necessarily objective. 
So you find that socially constructive, social constructivism is big in education departments and universities. But if you walk across the corridor to the psychology department, you can hardly find one. <laughs> uh, so it makes you wonder about the political bias that surrounds that, the idea that social is everything. Yeah. Having said that, it would be wrong to think of Vygotsky as being completely ideologically driven in his ideas, wouldn't it? Because yeah. I think he wasn't quite, although he took from Marx, he wasn't quite Marxist enough for the authorities who who would like him to, you know, quoted his over the Communist Manifesto. He had an idea that that you know that wasn't good enough as a way of kind of conducting science, and you had to do according to Marxian principles. You you still had to kind of drill a bit deeper than that. It, I, I would wholly agree with that. I mean, the, uh, my only claim there is that it's grounded in Marxism, but he certainly is not a pure Marxist. I mean, this is a very original thinker. I don't think his ideas are correct necessarily, but this is really a ma massive intellect and uh, someone who was working very much on their own in a sense. Well, a lawyer, and there were other people at the time with similar thoughts, but mm. it took, remember, it took a long time for us to know who Vygotsky was. It wasn't until, you know, really the 1970s and so on that says, yeah. those works became available. Well, Stalin suppressed his stuff, didn't he? Right. After his death. Although, to be fair, Stalin, he suppressed almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And um, because of his early death, uh, uh, Vygotsky yeah. died just as Stalin was starting to really get a, a grip on yeah. Russian society in that way. If he'd lived another 10 years, he might well have been up against the wall. Yeah, he died uh, in 1934, just after yeah. finishing Thought and Language, the, his major text, really. And, yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's very true. Okay, so let's move on. Yeah. So Jerome Brunner, 1915 to 2016. Jerome Seymour Brunner was an American psychologist born in New York City who made significant contributions to human cognitive psychology and cognitive learning theory and educational psychology. He was a child of Polish Jewish immigrants and he was born blind, but an operation at two restored his vision. That must have been a really interesting way to to kind of enter the world. Yeah. Studied at Duke, Harvard, and during World War II, served on the Psychological Warfare Division of Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force under Eisenhower, uh, researching social psychological phenomena. There are shades of Pynchon there, I think. Returning to academia after the war, he taught at Harvard and Oxford in the UK and NYU, and became one of the pioneers of cognitive psychology in the US with a series of experiments that challenged the behaviorist orthodoxy of the time by encouraging psychologists to study not just an organism's response to a stimulus, but also its internal interpretation. So the behaviorists thought of, um, you know, the mind is a black box, you just observe behavior. And he said, no, hold on a minute there, Charlie. It was not till around 1967 that he turned to developmental psychology, having already had a substantial career psychology and the study of how children learn influenced by Vygotsky. Donald, it's, it's Brunner who really championed the idea of scaffolding, a term we yeah. hear quite a lot in L&D. Though obviously his work is broader than just that. He lived to a hundred. If he'd been a UK citizen, he would have got a telegram from the Queen. <laughs> Century of existence then, what did he add to our understanding of learning? Yeah, well, it's nice to follow Vygotsky uh, with Brunner because Brunner writes the he writes the prologue, the introduction to thought and language in the, in the 1960s or so when this first came out. Even then, it wasn't particularly well known. It wasn't so much later that Vygotsky was recognized as a bit of a genius, really. But he 
he writes the introduction because he, he himself, of course, is a great theist who does believe that social interaction is fundamental to the process of learning. So that's no doubt about that. Jerome Bruner believes that. He is a social constructivist in the sense that he sees that learners have to be proactive in this sort of dynamic process that builds knowledge based on their existing knowledge. So we've got that notion of schemas that comes back from Piaget as well. And that we, he actually preferred the term mental models. So we are building on existing mental models as we learn okay, to move beyond the initial view of you have of the model to it being more complex, perhaps simpler, but certainly truer uh, uh, and learn with more accuracy. Now, but uh, there's another thing that's often forgotten about Brunner is he really is a sort of Socratic, he really believes in dialogue or learning through dialogue. And that by dialogue, he doesn't necessarily mean dialogue with the teacher, he thinks internal dialogue is terribly important. He would have loved chat GPT-4 because that's precisely, it's the chat and chat GPT-4 that makes it work so well. And then he has a notion of that internal dialogue and a thing called the spiral curriculum, which I rather like. I thought that was really interesting, the spiral curriculum idea. Yeah. The, the idea is that you have this internal dialogue, as well as the fact of Vygotsky, this inner voice. You can debate with yourself, and you find yourself often doing that, you know. Uh, but what you're doing by repeatedly reflecting and revisiting, you're coming up the spiral and learning as you go by adapting your model. So it's spiral curriculum, he called it. But you get into a higher level every time. Mm. Now, you don't get to that higher level accidentally. And he he does have a theory of instruction. Was, this is how you do it well. And uh, hardly anybody picks up on Bruner's one, but I quite like it. And so his theory of instruction isn't like the standard seven things you do, present a bit of theory, allow people to practice, allow people to reflect. He's, he talks about readiness. So remember, he is a sort of Piagian schema sort of person. Yeah. By readiness, he means you have to have a predisposition to learn, okay? So you can't just suddenly throw something at someone and expect them to learn. There must be some form of context and engagement. And then he really is quite strict on really teaching people as well through structure and sequence. These are the two big things for him. Structure, content has to have some reasonable structure about it uh, or else it will not be understood by the learner and certainly not retained by the learner. So he's very keen on the structure, breaking down knowledge into its uh, and learning in general into its constituent parts, a la Bloom or whatever. Mm. Sequence, sequence. Now this is where I think it gets really interesting because getting things in the right sequence is really the personalization of learning. If you get something wrong, then you need that skill gap covered. This is where technology is brilliant. It will give you the solution to your own cognitive personal problem. Mm. And he thought that was important. You have to have the most effective sequences for that learner. And then a really interesting one, number four. So remember, we'll come through readiness, structure, sequence. The four is, and we're going to come at this in a minute, with another great theorist, I think, that's generation. Good learning has to allow the learner to reflect, think, and effortly manipulate, extrapolate, synthesize, explore, fill in the gaps, all that sort of stuff. Uh, on their own. Learning is fundamentally for Brunner a personal affair and that most of the learning takes place through personal reflection. And this is where scaffolding comes in now because you can't learn everything on your own. Hmm. Scaffolding, you know, to be, you can be self-aware of all this stuff, but to really build and come up the spiral, the, the curriculum spiral, structure, sequencing, and scaffolding matters. And scaffolding is, of course, uh, the notion of 
it's a useful device, a bit hey, a bit weird in a way that it's not well defined very often, but it's giving help in a Vygotskyan sense using mediation or tools or feedback, support. The problem is it's all a little bit vague scaffolding for me. Uh, and when you try and break it down into the individual components and different species of feedback, it doesn't give you a hell of a lot in that necessarily, but I think it's a fruitful idea. He's also a bit of a cognitive psychologist. He's not strictly speaking a pure social constructivist, as you might say Vygotsky was. Yeah. But he does think, because he thinks that uh, it's less social and external and more personally driven. Learning. He kind of started cognitive psychology, didn't he? Yeah, he's, it's often attributed to him because he's a sort of bridge bridge into it in in many ways. But the, I mean, social constructivism has a habit of producing its own vocabulary. One of which, you know, you know, they all begin with S: schemas, <laughs> structure, sequencing, scaffolding. Just thought that they are all beginning with S, aren't they? But it comes up against the hardcore cognitive science. And to be fair to Brunner, he recognized that. He recognized that there are big limitations to just putting the word social in, some, in front of everything and hoping for the best. Because empirical science actually shows that the mind is not a black slate at all, that it has massive limitations in working memory, that the mechanisms of putting stuff from working memory to long-term memory are well known in terms of elaboration, storage, reinforcement, recall, all that sort of stuff. So, I think that's why he's recognized as someone who didn't get trapped trapped in the relativism of social constructivism. The spiral curriculum, um, that made me think of something specific that I used to complain that I, I did King Lear as, as I was growing up at O level, A level, and as part of my university degree. And I, I complained because I thought this is clearly a kind of laziness in the, the curriculum forming or something of English literature. It must be some terrible accident that, you know, maybe I ought to have learned about some other Shakespeare plays. But if you think of that as a spiral curriculum, each time you come back to the same place, but at a different level of sophistication. Um, and every time I go to see a production of King Lear now, and I've been to several, yeah. Um, yeah. I come back to it and think it's still kind of growing and changing. and. Yeah. So the idea of a spiral curriculum gave me a, a, a kind of rationale for understanding that. Yeah. It could have been worse, John. You could have been Scottish, because I, I, got, I got a similar thing with Macbeth. God knows <laughs> what it's done to my psyche. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, similarly, that's the other play I've read a lot. <laughs> So, well, that brings us along fortuitously to our next theorist, sure. Margaret Donaldson, 1926 to 2020, a Scot born in Paisley. Lost both her parents tragically young. She was 17 and 21. Took a French degree and spent a year in France, teaching at a lycée in Rouen, fluently French, joined the army and personnel, HRTU, then returned to Edinburgh University and switched to psychology. She worked with Piaget in, in Geneva. She studied Vygotsky and Luria, uh, of course. We, we haven't mentioned Luria, but he, he was quite important as well for, for the Vygotsky mm. story. And then via a John Hay Whitney Fellowship, she spent a year in the US where she was visiting lecturer at Rhodes College, Tennessee, and visited Harvard University where she met Jerome Brunner. Mm. So, you know, all of them, all of the others, she was one of the gang. Yeah, she was, later yeah. disputed Piaget's theories. A really interesting life. Uh, she was a reader in psychology when she met her future husband, Stephen Salter. So she's also known as um, 
Salter, an Edinburgh University engineer working in artificial intelligence. I think you do some stuff with that, don't you, Donald? Mm -hmm. And planning to build a robot with the intellect of a five-year-old. He sought her knowledge of how children thought at that age. You know, um, he wanted to build this robot, so he asked his wife, who worked in educational development, how a five-year-old speaks. And the pair hit it off, marrying in secret when she was 46 which is very late in, the, in those days uh, for a woman to be married. She made history at Edinburgh University as the first married woman professor. Her book, Child's Minds, was very influential, proposing four modes of learning. So we've got another four modes for you to chop through there, Donald. Yeah. In a later book, Human Minds, she turned to the underplaying of emotion in learning, um, which brings us to the kind of affective side of learning we've touched on before. Remarking her introduction to that book, that a friend read an early draft and warned her she was sailing into such dangerous waters. I would be letting you down badly if I didn't stand on the bank, waving and shouting and trying to get you to steer another course. Donald, how should we think about the course she steered in her very interesting career? Waving and shouting or stroking our chins in order yeah. appreciation? Well, I, you know, I really want to wave a big flag for Margaret Donaldson because I think she's hardly known compared to Piaget. But for me, actually, the better thinker. <laughs> it seems weird, but I really do believe that. Now, she she saw Piaget for what he was. And there's a good old phrase here, which we use in Scotland quite a lot. He, you know, she call, she would call Piaget a bit of a chancer. <laughs> she, she recognized the weakness of his methodology, really. And actually, her view of the world, based on experimental... I mean, she was a, a developmental psychologist who really did good empirical work solid work, which actually contradicted Piaget very quickly. And I, I, she basically thought that these stages were nonsense and that many of these things that Piaget said were stage dependent happened very much earlier in the minds of young children. And she turned out to be right. Mm. Now, so she was sceptical of Piaget and these two books, Children's Minds in the 70s and Human Minds were amazing works really. Uh, she's still a sort of social constructivist of sorts, you know, that notion that she, she does what Geary does, you know, the, the, the evolutionary theorist in learning. And always we have we have primary skills. She called it embedded knowledge and non-embedded knowledge. Embedded knowledge is the acquisition of your first language, sort of primitive knowledge you have of physics that other people have minds and so on and so forth. And she thought they come easy. You don't have to teach them. Non-embedded knowledge and skills, these are the things that you really have to teach, and it's quite hard. And she had a massive emphasis on reading. She had a massive influence on teacher training, interestingly, because of her work on reading as a specific thing that had to be acquired as a skill and taught as a skill. And it takes years to learn to read. We forget we read readily, most adults, but it takes a long time to teach your kid if you've ever had, had to do it on your own without the aid of a schooling or a teacher. Mm. And it's not just reading that matters to her. She thought thought that text and reading was another form of cognitive reflection. You know, the, the way in which it, you can develop your own mind as and when you read by manipulating and reflecting on the language of another person, that, uh, namely the writer that's being used. But she's most famous, perhaps, for these four modes of learning. These, this is a, it's really a critique of Piaget. Yeah. She thinks there are these modes, point line, construct, and transcendental. So the point mode is the... It's this very similar, the immediate present that young babies have. You know, they're not, they're sort of motor, uh, sensor and motor uh, stage that Piaget described. And then there's a line mode. 
This is interesting. She thought very different from Piaget or Vygotsky. She thought there was a moment cognitively where you start to use memory, but also project into the future and plan. In other words, oh God, I'm hungry. I'm not going to cry to get my mother's attention. You know, you're actually planning and doing and taking actions about future imagined events, as well as being able to recall things from the past. She called that line mode. Then construct mode. This is why she fits into the social constructivist thing. This construct mode was this notion that you you have existing beliefs and premises, but you can make the, this big jump from a very specific idea to a general idea. You can generalize, which is a very important uh, universalization type logical thinking skill that only happens at a certain stage with young people. And then the transcendent model, uh, mode is adult thinking, thinking abstractly beyond space and time. You know, we can think semantically about mathematics and poetry that are not necessarily rooted in one place or one time. So point mode, line mode, construct mode, transcendental mode. And these are, again, I'm not so keen on these, these schemas, you know, in terms of their exactitude, but I think it matches cognitive de development in a, in a way that's more... It's not that it's, it's truer, but it's more relevant uh, than Piaget, perhaps. And these are cumulative. For her, they're cumulative. You know, it's not that one bats the other one out. Uh, as you get these new forms of thinking, you retain the previous skills. Mm -hmm. And also, a really important thing with Margaret Donaldson as well is, unlike a lot of social constructivists who think that you know, it tends to go very Rousseau in the, the notion that everything's socially constructed. And therefore, if we just have loads of people doing social activities in classrooms, lots of collaborative activities and so on, all will be well. She just did not believe this. She rejected that whole child-centered view of learning that you got in Summerfield and Robert the Rousseau in view of, uh, of the idea. She was actually a reasonable fan of uh, direct instruction, as it were. Yeah. It doesn't mean to say not to overdo it, but uh, you know, she was quite maybe Scottish and sensible about this stuff. Yeah. And then, now you did mention one thing, which is the book Human, Human Minds, which I think is quite revolutionary for at the time. So way back in the, in the 70s, because she said, listen, with Bloom, people focus on that pyramid, but that was just the cognitive side. We've got this massive bias towards the cognitive, pure cognitive thinking side of learning theory, ignoring emotion, the affective side, and psychomotor. And she wanted to bring the affective mode back onto the table again. Mm. And we had a whole podcast about this. But that whole book was quite prophetic because it's turned out to be very, very relevant indeed. Yeah. Uh, that, that notion of uh, emotion and learning. And uh, she's a pioneer in that area. That whole book is about that one topic. The one you said was the dangerous idea. Yeah. And it was dangerous because everybody was uh, stuck in sort of cognitive mode. Hmm. Interesting. And to come back to the four modes, didn't mm -hmm. I get it right that she actually felt that we kind of cycled between these different modes in, yeah. you know, even as adults is the way we learn, but, which I think rather than having you know, discrete stages that you can't move on to class two until you finish class one, which was the Piaget kind of model. She she felt there were different modes of, of learning that we, we switched between. Feels to me more like the Kahneman thing that we've got the, you know, the two ways of reacting, one, the reptile brain, and then the more considering brain. And we use both and the two are in, you know, it, 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 in that sense, feels a bit more modern. I don't know. No, yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. I she certainly thought that the process of learning was complex. 
And she brings in the Hume's that Hume's idea that you know sentiment and emotion really matters. A good old Scottish Enlightenment person in that sense. Also, you know that get rid of the Bloom hierarchy, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and so on. Things are never that simple. Moving yeah. from one logical stage up a ladder, uh, and that learning and the thinking itself is rather messy, <laughs> and uh, cognitively messy, and for the individual sometimes confusing. Nevertheless, she thinks there's a general line of travel here about the child's increasing ability to handle and manipulate information in terms of looking to the past, looking to the future, and thinking abstractly. But you're absolutely right, even as adults, and she is right, that thinking is a big muddled mess of this stuff. You know, we're no, nobody thinks like a pure logician for, me, for very long, yeah. you know? And if you're sitting trying to predict the future, you suddenly find your mind drifting into other concerns because emotion comes to play. Oh my God, I need a cup of coffee. I get distracted by social media. It's a bit like a washing machine, as it were. And what I like about Margaret Donaldson is a realism around that. I think she captures human nature and thinking and cognitive phenomenon, the subtleties of it, in a way that perhaps Vygotsky or Piaget got nowhere near. Well, that's all very well, but we are moving through stages in constructing our episode, and now we have to move on to the next one. Fair enough. The next theorist is Merlin Wittrock, 1931 to 2007. He was an American educational psychologist and a long-time UCLA education professor, born in Twin Falls, Idaho, studied at the University of Missouri and the University of Illinois. He joined the UCLA faculty in 1960 and was the founding director of UCLA's Center for the Study of Evaluation. He headed the Division of Educational Psychology from 1986 to 1994 and was chairman of the faculty from 1991 to 1993. If it feels like I'm stuffing this with intro <laughs> facts, it's because there's very little biographical detail at all no. about him. Uh, on the on the internet, either by accident or by design, his Wikipedia entry is is extremely sparse. So I'll plow on. He received the APA's Thorndike Award for Distinguished Psychological Research Contributions to Education in 1986, and the UCLA Distinguished Teaching Award in 1990. Best known for his generative theory of learning, which he first published in 1974. So put some flesh on the bones of that uh, rather scanty bio, Donald. Tell us about him, please, and his very important contribution to social constructivism. Yeah, I often think that Merlin uh, Wittrock is, you know, is a rather unusual person in learning theory. He's almost like a fine wine. When I come across somebody who knows him, I'm really rather pleased <laughs> uh, because he's uh, a rare but fabulous wine. <laughs> I would put that in that context. Now, he was a, a Piagetian, really, in a sense. He, and not in terms of that strict stages of the ages and stages thing, but in terms of schemas, it's all learning is, you know, a constructive act eh, and follows on from Brunner and seeing things as models which are adjusted as you learn. So he's in that camp very firmly, but we're not that we're not like Vygotsky passive receivers of social knowledge, you know, we're actually active proactively in reorganizing, restructuring, resequencing our own knowledge. We're effortful learners. And because we're effortful seeking beings, uh, you have to pay attention to that in learning theory. So he encourages the whole idea behind Wittrock is give learners the freedom and space to generate their own thoughts and ideas and reflections because the generation generative learning is the most powerful form of learning 
full stop. Now, he may just be right on this. And if it's true, he's perhaps one of the more, most important people that we've discussed in these podcasts, that our own generative activities are perhaps the most powerful things. When you ask people what they're most what they feel their most powerful learning activities have been, they very often describe something they've made or done themselves in the absence of an institution, a classroom, or a teacher, or a lecturer. And I think he's onto something here, but he was quite precise about what, you know, what the components of this generative process were. And I, that's what I like about it. He didn't just hang on, hang about there. He says, no, let, let me look empirically at what, what, for a model here around what a good generative learning process would be, a good learning experience, if you want to call it that. And first of all, he, he describes the notion of the importance of attention. And that's terribly important, because if you're really going to have directed learning, you can faff around doing lots of generative stuff and playing about. doesn't necessarily mean you're learning much. So there's focus and attention matters. The second big one, classic motivation. You, you really want to, you want to be sure that the person will actually go on and do this intrinsic motivation of course not extrinsic motivation prior knowledge the you know the what you bring to the table is terribly important as well if you're going to generate new stuff it must be generated on the back of the stuff the old stuff that you already have in your mind and then if so you've got attention motivation and then the, the third one is the the knowledge and preconceptions you might have and the most important one of all the fourth one is generation making meaning of the world sense making building things, building ideas yourself. The act of generation itself seems to not only aid retention, but expand you cognitively. So that's the four generative components. And uh, yeah, that, I mean, I, that, I think it's it's an obvious idea and simple idea, but so powerful because I think if learning designers, for example, just took that on board for one minute and gave people lots of opportunities to do this, we would get a lot further rather than just imposing learning upon people, you know, watch the screen, watch this video, answer this multiple choice question, fill in the blank, you know, you're not giving any, anyone room to breathe and generate their own ideas. Mm. And I think that's his great insight. And of course, the, he spent a lifetime studying this, of course. And he went on to do some other stuff around problem solving as well, and uh, which with Richard Mayer, actually, who we've covered already. Oh, yeah. And he looked at the whole notion of generative learning in terms of its impact on problem solving and then had some principles about how you could teach problem solving actually by making them domain specific you didn't think it was an abstract separate skill near transfer knowledge integration and so on so some interesting ideas that take you beyond just the generation of stuff to the application of generative learning in problem solving but what i really liked also was the he wasn't he was a really good collaborator i think and he worked there with uh, some other reasonably well-known researchers uh, in, in the 90s, more recently, Alessandrini and uh, two people who are quite famous, and that's Fiorella and Mayer, who we have studied and looked at before in terms of online learning. Now, what, what he did with those people is try and identify what the really good strategic generative activities would be. Okay, I've said you want to generate stuff. What do you mean by generating stuff? And he comes out with a nice, really nice list in these papers. What in, in combination with some other theories here. So he thought that summarizing, for example, was great. That's a summarizing you do when you become a good note taker. You yeah. know, he thought the act of summarizing was gener great generative. It could be oral, could be written. Uh, mapping, the sort of mind mapping stuff that we know of, concept maps, you know, drawing things out. Drawing itself, he thought, was a great generative activity. 
and I've got my little notebook here. I've got hundreds of these notebooks. Literally, I've had them all my life. And I'm constantly scribbling, summarizing, drawing little diagrams. Uh, you know, that's uh, that's a generative activity. But of course, it's not necessarily that you've got the imagination. I've got to waggle my notebook in front of the camera. Yeah, yeah let's do a waggle. <laughs> <laughs> Study on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, it's not just physical things and gener generative learning. You can, you know, the imagining something even the act of imagination helps you that's why retrieval practice and sometimes these mnemonic techniques and memory work so well you know if you get into the habit of doing that so you remember something it works self-testing yeah so the test effect he was well aware of was a very powerful thing self-explaining but and then also teaching that notion that when you have to actually pull something together like for today's podcast you know i'd forgotten some of the stuff i do some stuff but i had to go back and read it again uh, and I'm now in a sort of almost teaching mode, if you would call it that. But I know that this is doing me a lot of good cognitively because I'm having to generate this stuff and think deeply about it yeah. as I as I speak it. So he thought that was wonderfully generative. And then another really nice one I quite like, because I've read a few papers on this recently, on enacting. And always you act something out. There's some very interesting papers showing that children who actually use gestures when they're when they're doing mathematics actually retain the knowledge and move through the mathematical concepts much quicker. And I've often thought that that was true. That when if you use movement in some form, you know, I'm quite a, anybody who's seen me on these on these video versions of the podcast will see that I gesticulate a lot, yeah. <laughs> and I do when I'm speaking. And I think there's something in this inaction, inaction in terms of. A generative activity that helps you remember. Ah. So it, it, it put the flesh on the bones in that way, which I think is pretty wonderful. I think it's quite interesting that when one of the ways I prepared for this um, uh, this podcast, which is um, actually it's quite random, some of it was <laughs> I used ChatGPT, <laughs> but I, one of the very ill advised, I, I went onto the website of a of a learn tech provider and read a blog about social constructivism about constructivism. Um, it, it was a series of blogs about learning theory. So obviously I'm interested in that. And it, it started off by talking about how constructivism is about you you have, uh, you have build one piece of knowledge on another. You know, there's the stuff that you know, and then you add a block to that and make the connections with that. And then you move on and and and, and so forth. And it, it kind of gave that as the first thing, the, 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 the kind of foundational thing about constructivist learning theories. And it seems to me that that, Sounds as if that is from Wittrock rather than, you know, we've taken yeah. this from a historical sense from the front, but yeah. uh, their version of it seemed to go from the, and, and I wonder if that's what people really mean nowadays in, you know, in our world when they talk about constructivist learning theory, that where it's ended up rather than where it began with Piaget. I often wonder what people mean when they use the phrase social construct because it strikes me that they have a vague idea that things should generally be social. <laughs> we do lots of stuff in classrooms together or learning cohorts or whatever, yeah. a, a, which can lead to some really horrible experience. You know, those sort of round table things you get in training, the flip charts and stuff. Yeah. Uh, there's that general. And then the second one is just complete bamboozlement. Oh, yeah, generally we sort of construct knowledge in our heads, which is a trivial statement. Nobody would deny that was true, but a hardcore cognitive scientist would give you a full theory about how memory works, how elaboration works, how we retrieve things from long-term memory, how stuff goes from short to long-term memory. They would give you a full explanation for that. You can't just say we construct in a vague sort of way, but that's exactly what people do. 
they use the phrase, I think, in a very loose and almost, you know, use it like a like a coin that's had its head rubbed off. You know, it's it's a form of currency, but people don't actually know what's on it. On it. Yeah. I think the trouble is you've got to really address the big damning criticisms around, I think, around uh, social negotiation as a form of learning, because it can waste huge amounts of time. And I've seen this myself with my kids in classrooms in school. They come back saying, yeah, we had this, you know, we had this, we're going to project teams and so on. And you get huge amount of social loafing, especially by the poorer kids or the kids who are further behind compared to the kids who know their stuff already sometimes and dominate the group mm. or the extroverts. I don't think it's particularly good also for certain, you know, neurodiverse contexts. Introverts don't do well with social learning at all. And yet they're they're sort of bowled into it, you know, as if they should be doing role-playing all the time and working in groups, which for many is can be quite distressing. Mm. And so I, I am not wholly convinced that, you know, social negotiation is the great force in learning that we think it is. It's often destructive, as I said, for introverts. But, you know, I think often constructivist theory can, you know, even if it's correct or wrong, it can accelerate learning in the privileged and de, de accelerate learning in the less privileged. It's one mm. of the problems. And lastly, I would say that it falls into that trap that Popper called a universal theory. You know, no matter what criticism criticism you may throw it, the person throws back, well, Donald, you're socially conditioned. You don't really know what you're talking about here. And I think that I'm always wary of theory since I read Popper about that. You know, any theory that's universal is a sort of Marxist theory. Well, Donald, I'm sorry, but, you know, you don't really understand the, the dynamics of the class system. Uh, well, maybe not, but it's a universal argument. There's no arguing against it because it covers everything. Mm. And I feel that about social constructivism. We're kind of summing up now about yeah. social constructivism. Yeah. Are the problems you're pointing up there to do with the way that it's kind of used? You know, in other words, people emphasize the social bit People, you know, we want to learn in cohorts, so we'll say we're social constructivisms rather than the constructivism bit. Or is there an inherent problem with, you know, even if you're not misinterpreting it, if you've read all the books and know what it is, is there still an inherent problem with it? I think there's a fundamental problem with it philosophically and scientifically, and that it's just not true. <laughs> That's my beef with it, as it were. It's not true in its strong sense, when people over-egg the idea that everything is socially constructed. But even at the even the Vygotskyan idea, the language is a force behind that social constructivism, I think is wrong as well. And Pinker, you know, gives devastating critique of this in the blank slate. Mm. Uh, and he, you know, I, th I think most cognitive psychologists would think that it was over-egged. Uh, but I think there's a, another really interesting way to look at social constructivism on a positive note is something that happened last night. Now, last night, and I've been working with this stuff for years now, this AI stuff, John, yeah. and it may be worth switching into that moment because, you know, there's these new models, large language models. Go back to the Vygotskyan idea a little bit. So Vygotsky says that cultural, social things allow us to learn through language. That's the mediating force. Now, these large language models take all the language on the internet, and I mean a lot. I mean, you're talking about billions and billions of data points, almost everything we've ever thought of as human culture. 
And it's really us. It's all our language. And this mass hive mind or super mind that's turned into mathematics. And then through some very smart math, it spits stuff back at us if we ask it a question. In a funny sort of way, it is being massively socially constructivist in its output. It's doing exactly what Vygotsky says minds do. Hmm. <laughs> Only drawing not upon the limitations of your own personal memory or the mediator or the knowledgeable adult or the knowledgeable other, but all knowledgeable others, all experts on all domains. And we saw last night how that approach is so powerful now. It's doing absolutely amazing things on the teaching of detailed mathematics, the teaching of a foreign language. You can actually go in and chat and have a fully immersive experience now in almost any of the major languages on Duolingo because they use chat GPT-4. You can go into Khan Academy and get very detailed tutor-like hand-holding through a maths problem in a way that takes it slowly, is sensitive to you as a learner. And that happened last night. And in a sudden, it made me think a lot about today's podcast because I think, you know, we now have human teachers. We had human teachers and human learners, a dyad, let's call it, in the past. Yeah. That's the model for all learning theory. We now have eight, two other kids on the block. We have AI teachers and AI that learns. So we have human teachers, human learners, AI teachers, and AI learners. So we now have a tetrad. We have four entities in our learning world now. But the but there's interaction between all those two, all those things. So ChatGTP is really us. It's captured all of our knowledge and then throws it back to us and uses it in a socially advantageous way for us because we can speak to it. And I saw some amazing things this morning where you can say, I want to speak to Socrates. And you can speak to Socrates. <laughs> and it's really mind-blowingly interesting, you know, because it's pretty good. You can say, right, teach me something about maths, and it would do it almost immediately. It said, teach me about, you know, the American Civil War. Boom, it's straight there, acting like a very knowledgeable other, which is the phrase Vygotsky used about mediated okay. analysis. MKO, wasn't it? Yeah. Donald, it sounds like, um, you're going to hate me for this, it sounds like you said that the problem with social constructivism is that it isn't true, but AI is going to make it true. Yeah, well, it doesn't make it, it doesn't make social constructivism as a theory true. It just happens to be the method, the method in which AI is using is socially, almost Vygotskyan intent, you know, in other words, these are large language models. But here's a rub. ChatGTP is also using images. You can actually feed images into it, and it will also read images. So it's going beyond language and what Margaret Donaldson said was important, just reading. What these models are showing us is that the brain is much more sensitive to other media than text. So mm -hmm. ChatGTP3 was a text-only thing, but all these future large models are going to be multimodal. Like a chatbot, you'll be able to speak intelligently as you would to your teacher or your parent, or your child, or your or, or the knowledgeable other. So we'll be moving gradually away from text as a dominant form. But I think the real lesson pedagogically, and I call this pedagogy, P-E-D-A-I-gogy, pedagogy, with the I in the middle, is this is about co-creation now. It's going back to a Socratic model. We're no longer, the relationship with knowledge is completely different. Knowledge is no longer here or behind the screen, that search on Wikipedia. Knowledge is something that I interact with can co-create, can ask questions of, it can ask questions of me. And that's fundamentally how human communication works. Chomsky always used to say this about language. 
language is not the representation of ideas. Language is a communications device. And I think that's fundamentally true. And it's fun and being sensitive to that is important in learning. So I think we're getting a new AI pedagogy or pedagogy that teaches us that this it's a big paradigm shift because we thought that actually it was just teachers teaching other people. It turns out not to be. The learner can engage with this stuff, almost bypassing teaching, which I think is happening before our eyes now, much faster than people imagine, because it goes back to the way the brain really does learn. And on that note, unfortunately, <laughs> you're just getting started, really, aren't you? Don't yeah, you? I was there. Yeah, I think we, we had to draw to a close now. Thank you very much. It's been absolutely fascinating. No problem, John. Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Helmer. Sound editors by Isaac Peacock. Social media by Jay Curtis. Graphics by David O'Connor. The podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark and would like to thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project. If you're a fan of these podcasts and want to support us and get exclusive member benefits, go to patreon.com forward slash learning hack.